And welcome to tonight's edition of the One Hood Power Hour, our season-ending edition of the One Hood Power Hour. I am your co-host, Kahari Mosley, here with my co-host, Miracle Jones, who is actually streaming in from the country of Germany. Um, and uh, if we have a little bit of technical difficulties, that that is because she's streaming in from Germany. But uh, welcome, Miracle, to the show. And before we jump into some uh news updates can you just uh give us a quick update about your uh your global travels and and what brought you to germany uh yes i am actually traveling europe right now um, with trans uniting just to talk about the way COVID 19 is impacting queer individuals um abroad and how that is uh, impacting the way people are able to build community we know that COVID 19 has had a disparate impact among uh, black and brown uh, queer individuals and so how are they engaging how are they mobilizing how are they organizing and how are they able to come together and to build a community and support each other during this time so i'm doing some research um, out here as well as doing some uh observations and studying and discussions so that's what we are doing in europe it's been of course impacted by COVID 19 so we're changing the project a little bit but i'm very fortunate and blessed uh to be here and to do to do some studies obviously you know missing some of the, the pittsburgh sports action you know that everybody's been excited about um but i'm here and um I'm very blessed and, and grateful so how's uh pittsburgh been i know you'll have like 60 degree weather or something yeah, it's been it's been pretty warm. It's been it's been pretty warm uh, for for December, and you know, obviously, you know, our, our thoughts uh, continue to be uh, with with the folks who have been devastated, uh, you know, in Kentucky and in the in the Great Plains and in the Tennessee Valley. Um, you know, continued unfortunate news uh, continues to come out of there. Um, um, a lot of great um, journalism, a lot of great reporting I've seen on MSNBC. Um, you know, just uh, getting, you know, deep into the communities and the various uh, communities for those, who, you know, aren't familiar, particularly in Mayfield, Kentucky, the town that was hardest hit um, does have a very um, large uh, Latino community uh, from Central and South America. Um, so, uh, you know, they're going to be, you know, facing some very unique challenges. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit uh, about you know the type of unique challenges folks from the immigrant community face day to day but uh you know this uh you know natural disaster you know has lifted up you know a community um that that has a large immigrant community that are going to be facing very unique challenges as um all the folks um in, in kentucky that continue uh, to be in, in our thoughts um as, as the federal response um continues um to that catastrophe so i did want to mention that before we get into um to other news um so um you know to start off with the news um miracle is there anything you want to share i know locally people have been talking about dr oz being in pittsburgh so again we are barely uh, winding down to election 20 
now 21, and here we are already uh, gearing up for election uh, 2022. So it's very important that everyone comes together, you know, and, and registers to vote. It's once again politically active. I know it seems like to be this exhausting cycle over and over again, but Pittsburgh is in play. We had, uh, you know, a uh, a program a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, almost upwards of a billion dollars to be pouring into Pennsylvania because of these elections. So reminding people to stay involved, stay activated. There's a lot that's happening. You know, there's some stuff looking at what's going on with the local land bank. How are we going to have people staying in their homes during this time? COVID-19 is still ever present in our communities. So there's a lot of things going on that we have to focus on and, and fight for and advocate for, we're talking about that in a few moments as well. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what policies and what positions a lot of elected officials are going to take over the next six months, because there, again, is so much going on, including an announcement a few hours ago that student loans will not be paused again um, coming the next fiscal year. So starting in February, people are have to repay their student loans again. So that is a conversation that people are mobilizing around. We're still waiting to see about the uh, Build Back Better Act, what the Senate is going to do from there. So every day it's something on top of that. Our own legislature uh, here in Pennsylvania um, it is returning to work, returning to session tomorrow. So we have so much happening in such a little time. And it's very important, again, that we stay civically engaged, even though it's the holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in national news, uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, scrutiny um, around uh, the documents that, that have been submitted by Mark Meadows, the uh, former uh, White House chief of staff under uh, former President Trump, uh, had, you know, at, up to a certain point, had cooperated with the January 6th uh, committee in the house and uh and recently uh, has decided to stop um uh cooperating with the committee thus uh the committee has began uh the formal process of holding uh mr meadows in contempt of con congress which could then um eventuate in him being indicted uh for contempt of congress um so as we continue to you know to see uh direct links between um the activists um, that were, uh, you know, really at the forefront of the insurrection on January 6th, being directly in contact. Uh, there's definitely t text messages, cell phone records, emails that show Chief of Staff Meadows um, uh, being in touch with, with a variety of, of, of the various activists who have been called and questioned in, in front of the committee for their role in the insurrection. So uh, I think as we uh, continue to dig deeper into January 6th, um, you know, the direct ties between folks that were in the White House and folks from um, the movement um, that, you know, whether it's the QAnon folks, whether it's the, uh, the other right wing groups, um, there's just clearly a direct line between many of these groups and the White House directly on January 4th and 5th into January 6th. I, don't, I, I know you've been traveling, but I don't know if you had an opportunity um, to see any of that coverage, or even if in your travels in Europe, this is something that has uh, made the international news. Yeah, um, it, it's been fun because some of these people are like, oh, you're an American. 
they do want to talk about, you know, American politics and what's going on in Kentucky and different places. But a lot of it is a lot of people have questions about what's going on, how, why is it taking so long to get answers and information? And if people had such direct evidence of wrongdoing or collusion, why is it such a, a almost strain to get people to cooperate, to get people to talk, to move? So again, this is going to be a huge election issue. And I don't foresee anything going away because again, people are still uh, uh, guaranteed for 2024. So that's what they're um, organizing on about the election. And so we're going to keep having these conversations and hopefully we'll have some answers and, and something resolved to to figure out how uh, January 6th happened, who all was involved, what elected officials knew what was going on and to what extent. But I don't foresee this winding down anytime soon, especially not before uh, the spring primary. You know, I think you're right. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, how the rest uh, of the work of the committee plays out um, and and how the next several months, you know, look, you know, and, and in some other news, uh, Pennsylvania State Senator uh, Haywood, um, State Senator Haywood out of the Philadelphia area uh, has released uh, a Pennsylvania poverty report that is very interesting. You know, we'll drop that into uh, the, the comment section as well. And, and it has, um, you know, um, very, 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 uh, you know, powerful information talks about uh, the economic and social impacts of lack of childcare, of low wages, the lack of affordable housing, the lack of transportation across the state um, and how that impacts um, those trying to rise out of poverty uh, into prosperity. So we'll make sure we drop that uh, link um, into the comment section as well. So you can follow the work that Senator Haywood out of the greater Philadelphia area um, is, is doing. Um, America, would you like to uh, give us a quick rundown of tonight's show and who will be joining us? Uh, yes, we wanted to end this year talking about community. That's where we started off as One in Power. And that is where we're going to be ending is talking about community action. There's a lot of stuff happening all across the country. And so we wanted people to get involved and support and to fight back. So um, we'll have talking with three different organiz organizations uh, today about what they are doing to fight and stand up for their own community and the changes that they are making. Our first uh, guest is going to be uh, Billy Reeves, who works at Casa San Jose. And tomorrow, actually, they are going down to the Capitol to uh, uh, join a march and a rally to change the way Pennsylvania law is working to ensure that people have access to tuition uh, support as well as driver's license, regardless of immigration status. And so with that, we want to welcome Billy Reeves to the program this evening welcome welcome thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here thank yeah, you, you a question yeah so can you just talk a little bit about casa san jose and some of the work that you do yes so casa san jose uh we're a latino resource center um, that was started in 2013 by the sisters of saint Baden. um we provide various resources to the latino community um, across 
southwestern and central western Pennsylvania. Um, although our main office is over here in Beachview, um, here in Pittsburgh, um, we have four satellite offices across um, the region. You know, we have one in East Liberty, um, one in Washington, one in Mooncrest, and um, one over in Ambridge. Now, through these offices, you know, we provide various services to families. Um, this could be simply, you know, just providing diapers to a, you know, a mother who just uh, had a child. Um, you know, we also have plenty of uh, youth programs um, where youth are able to interact. You know, part of our mission and vision is self-sufficiency. So we want to teach the community how to stand up for themselves, you know, and also providing tools um, to become successful in society. Um, in addition, you know, we provide translation um, for legal documents, which is a big thing as well. Um, a lot of our, our community members are going through their immigration cases. So, you know, we'll help um, our community members uh, through that process to streamline that process for them and more importantly for them to understand what is happening. Um, you know, language barrier is the biggest thing, um, especially in this side of the state. So that's why uh, our services are there to help them. We also offer uh, mental health services. You know, there's a lot of trauma um, that could, you know, could occur from, you know, their journey here to the United States. And because of that, you know, we have two social, uh, not social, mental health workers, um, Jeanette and Sandra, that do a great job um, with uh, helping our community with uh, their mental health and ensuring that our community is uh, well taken care of in that sense. And most importantly, born out of COVID, um, you know, we also uh, have a whole medical wing now where basically we uh, provide uh, vaccination clinics to the community. You know, we've uh, we've provided vaccines to over thousands of community members, but I know we can get into that later. But uh, yeah, it's a little synopsis. And that besides all that, we also advocate for the community. You know, we stand up for the community. We want to uh, advocate for the community, but more in a sense, lift up their voices. You know, I'm here to ensure that the community members can be heard by the uh, legislators. It's not my voice, it's their voice. You know, I listen to um, what issues affect them. And because of that, you know, we're a community-led organization. You know, I'll advocate the issues that will um, ensure that they have a better life here within the Commonwealth. Thank you for that. Now, could you tell us, you know, a little bit about uh, what's going to be happening in Harrisburg uh, tomorrow, you know, and why this issue is so important? So uh, tomorrow, it actually is a very big action. Um, you know, unfortunately, due to the fact that uh, pathway to citizenship did not come into fruition on the uh, federal level. You know, it was decided among two of the most prominent statewide campaigns um, regarding undocumented issues, um, the driver's license campaign, which advocates um, for driver's licenses for the undocumented community um, here within the Commonwealth. Basically, um, the undocumented population, which is 180,000 strong um, within the Commonwealth, would be able to have access to obtain a driver's license, be able to have the means, um, you know, to take the driver's test and be able to know the rules of the road in addition to uh, become insured, you know, once they would be able to attain um, their driver's license. You know, the driver's license bill, it's all about accessibility. It's about safety on our roads, and um, it provides much more safety to all drivers um, within the Commonwealth. Secondly, um, the tuition equity campaign, they uh, we advocate for um, the uh, in-state tuition for undocumented students within the Commonwealth. So currently undocumented students at public institutions have to pay international rate um, at a uh, public college here within Pennsylvania. Now international rate, that's forced many of our community members to basically take one or two credits at a time. And this is at CCAC. 
if if they even can. Um, so I'm not trying to out them. I'm just just stating the facts. Um, however, um, you know what we're trying to push for is basically more accessibility for our community. So basically, if this bill would be passed, it would allow for undocumented students, if they attend a uh, high school, public or private, um, charter school or cyber secondary school for at least two years or a GD program and graduate that school or program, then they would be eligible for in-state tuition. And in addition, it would direct PASHI to make a separate financial aid application. So basically, um, they'd be able to attain uh, state scholarships and grants as well. So basically, you know, these two campaigns came together and we thought of all the messaging, how to, you know, kind of tie it together for more accessibility for the community. And basically the purpose is we want to show the legislator that, you know, we're still here. And despite, you know, pathway to citizenship not coming to fruition, you know, now it's in the state's hands. The state's hands has, you know, the power to provide more accessibility to the community. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And Billy, for people who aren't really familiar with these issues, can you talk about the barriers that this creates for the clients that you serve, not being able to have a driver's license, not being able to obtain upper level education, and why it's so important that we all get involved um, in, in this campaign? Yeah, of course. Um, so for driver's licenses, um, you know, I think everyone here who's driving, watching this show can understand if you really take a second back into thinking like how important um, a driver's license is and yeah, it's something you should not take for granted because, you know, being able to drive, it means you can go to the store without, you know, having any concern for your life, for your family. Um, it means you can, you know, if you're caring for, uh, you know, your parents who may be more elderly, you can take them to the doctor, you can take your child to school. And, you know, you can go on a road trip. You have the liberty to do what you want. Um, you know, without a driver's license, you know, one, it can hinder our, our community members from kind of having more accessibility to jobs. So basically, they're going to be kind of put in this area where they can't really leave because this is the only area they can access, you know, whether it's through public transportation or other means, maybe ride sharing with another community member who does have means to drive. Um, in addition, you know, like I mentioned, you know, we have community members, youth who have parents who are undocumented, who are citizens themselves. They worry that their parents are going to be um, stopped. And because of that, since they're driving without a license, you know, you have an instant family separation right there. So, you know, you have the fear of, you know, family separation almost every day for these families, these families of mixed status. And basically what this would provide is, you know, it would provide more security um, for those families as well, you know, and basically knowing that, you know, now they have the right to drive, um, you know, regardless if it's a special provision or not, you know, they have the driver's privileges to drive within the Commonwealth. Now, you know, it's a similar tune with um, tuition equity as well. You know, our youth specialists, you know, Jose and Teresa, I give them, you know, a lot, big round of applause. Um, they do a great job, you know, working with our youth. And because of them, you know, our youth are very successful. But I have to be honest, you know, when a lot of youth that are undocumented, they realize their status and they realize, you know, the barriers that creates for them um, and basically being able to seek higher education, they kind of lose the will to even want to go to high school and they lose the will to even want to graduate because you know what they think, what am I going to do after this? You know, I'm just all I'm going to have is labor opportunities. 
you know, and that that's that's a real tragedy because you know we're really cutting off, you know, a force that wants to work. They want to contribute to the their communities. They want to contribute to the city. They want to contribute to the county, the state, and they're just they're not able to because they're not able to access those uh, opportunities, that higher education, and you know, just besides accessibility, cost as well. Like I said, you know, we have families that are willing to pay thousands of dollars just for one credit at a time. Um, you know, that's how much they're dedicated to wanting to succeed themselves and succeed for their families. Um, but cost, you know, is a big thing. And, you know, with this, with 1576 being passed, you know, it would allow for public colleges, especially CCAC, you know, community colleges around here, become much more accessible to the community. And in addition, with, um, you know, financial opportunities such as grants and scholarships, and even just loans offered by the state, it could allow our community members to even fathom the thought of maybe going to a private college, you know, maybe thinking of their dream college, you know, it would give them, give them that hope. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I know you talked at the very beginning that you do uh, COVID-19 outreach and support um, for the community. Can you just talk about how the lack of driver's license um, accessibility also impacts the way people are able to get COVID-19 resources and why it's so important, again, that this legislation is passed. Yeah, of course. I mean, Ray, you said that, I knew exactly what I was going to say. Um, basically, you know, we have, uh, in the in the eve of the pandemic, when, when the vaccine was just first introduced, um, you know, we were having vaccination clinics um, kind of all over the county. In addition, the region, you know, we had mobile clinics in Washington, um, Newcastle up in Lawrence County um, and Ambridge, trying to reach as many community members as possible that we work with. Um, right now, we have uh, a vaccination clinic every Tuesday at our Beachview office from nine to twelve. Now, in terms of driver's licenses and how that hinders our community members ability to get a vaccine, it's pretty much in the question. They don't have a car. And because of that, um, if they don't really understand public transportation, um, the system itself because of the language barrier, then basically they're not going to have any accessibility to get to our office to receive the vaccine. So, you know, because of that, you know, we provide over 500 rides to community members um, to our clinics, not just the one we have on Tuesdays, but to our various clinics to ensure that they're able to be vaccinated, you know, when they feel, when they, when they want to. Um, you know, we want to provide that accessibility and we're not going to let them not having a driver's license prevent that. Thank, thank you for that. And um, and as we mentioned in, in the opening remarks, we talked about, um, you know, the, the devastation, you know, in, in you know, in Kentucky and, and, and how um, some of the great reporting that's been going on has been able to, uh, you know, um, enlighten many of us around the country of uh, the diversity, you know, in, in a town um, like Mayfield. Can you just talk a little bit from your perspective, just like, because I just feel like there's such a parallel between um, trying to, to, you know, uh, contact and access, you know, various services, um, you know, day to day in the community. You just talked about many of those barriers. So you just just for uh, the folks tuning in, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of these uh, communities down in Mayfield, you know, that have potentially language barriers that potentially have like you says, a mixed status, uh, like like households, how that, you know, not only day to day, how these uh, can pose obstacles, but what types of obstacles can they pose in the face of, of a tragedy like we're seeing in Kentucky? 
So in terms of the communities in Mayfield, that's what you're saying. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, that are very much like the communities that you serve here in Western Pennsylvania. No, correct. I mean, you know, this is something that I've discovered through working through Casa San Jose. Um, nonprofits are key in providing that link between um, services that are provided by, you know, public institutions and the community. Um, if it isn't for nonprofits, um, you know, especially that have much more ingrained connections with the community, you know, they're the ones that are able to, um, you know, connect the community to services um, that are much needed. You know, the language barrier is the biggest concern. And because of that, you know, if I were, you know, the municipal authorities down there or even the state, I would be sending interpreters of every language that you knew were in those communities. Um, because the language barrier, it can be simple, but it could also be great in the same in the same sense. Um, it could be just one little, you know, thing, detail that needs to be worked out, but that could mean you gain the service or not. So, you know, if I were them, you know, if I were the state or, the, you know, the, the municipal authorities, I'd be trying to garner as many interpreters as possible to understand what the needs are of the communities there in Mayfield and then uh, assess how they can um, service the communities down there. But like I said, nonprofits across the country, they're ones that connect with um, the community and able to connect community members to those services. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That, 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 was, that was fantastic. Now, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we, we look forward up to hearing more you know, about your efforts. Uh, the best of luck tomorrow. We did in include in the comment section a link um, you know, to your petition. Um, to uh to 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 um we're calling on the state legislator we're calling on the governor to let pennsylvania drive forward uh, that link is, is in the is in the comment section so we're asking everybody to click on that uh, fill out that petition i will be filling out my petition after the show and uh you know i really encourage everyone else um to participate but again billy reeves from casa san jose thank you so much uh, for joining us and we look forward to being in touch and continuing to figure out ways that, that we can partner and support the very important work that you're doing here in Western Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. I look forward to uh, talking again on the show, and I really appreciate both of you having me on tonight. I'm also going to drop a link in the chat to our Facebook event for the March. Okay. So if anyone's interested, last minute, we'll be leaving at 4.30 tomorrow from Beachview. So. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely start nine o'clock in harrisburg so you got to be there on time that's right that's right yeah thanks so much and travel safe best thank of luck you very much thank you very much thank you again that's billy reese from casa san jose uh discussing a, a very uh important action day that they're going to have at the state capitol tomorrow um advocating for a driver's license for immigrants as well as uh equity uh intuition access um and access to uh affordable tuition uh, for immigrant students um, here uh, in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so now we're going to move to our next guest, Miracle. Can you uh, give us a quick rundown on um, our, our next guest and uh, and talk about who, who will be joining us and what will be the topic of our discussion for our second segment? Yes, and I'll just let our listeners know that for the next two segments, the topics may be a little bit heavy, um, so can just consider this like a blanket trigger warning we'll be talking about police violence and state violence for the next two topics but last week there was a, a local article that was released that talked about how an individual has spent um over four years waiting to go to trial after being shot by police 
And so to talk a little bit more about the situation that's going on here in Pittsburgh and to give some insight about some of the criminal justice matters, we're going to welcome uh, Brittany Haler to the uh, program, who is a local journalist, also a professor um, in journalism and a writer with the Pittsburgh Institute of Nonprofit uh, journalism and who does a lot of writing about incarcerated individuals. So welcome to the program, Brittany. Okay. We're good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yes, thank you so much uh, for joining us this evening. I, I know you have a lot going on um, with the end of the semester, but to start off, can you just talk to us a little bit about the Institute? What is it? What does it do? Um, and what are some of the stories you have been able to uncover just in the, the few short weeks that y'all have been in existence? Yeah. Um, so the Pittsburgh Institute for Nonprofit Journalism um, was founded by myself, um, Mary Niederberger, and Jody DePerna. Um, we launched in the fall of this year. Um, we are made possible by um, our fiscal sponsor, who is the Alternative News Foundation. Um, and they're making a concerted effort to help sponsor small micro newsrooms um, across the country in order to kind of save journalism right now. Um, we are a tiny, tiny little entity, um, which actually gives us some freedom. Um, we, we do not have aspirations to become a daily paper. Um, we hope to focus on the stories that aren't necessarily being covered um, which includes the stories of those that are incarcerated, um, stories about uh, Pittsburgh public schools, um, interviewing writers of color whose books have come out that maybe people don't know about yet. Um, our first series that we launched was uh, funded by the Education Writers Association, and it looked at how students in higher ed um, navigate um, their disability. Um, we just got funding from the Grable Foundation to investigate learning gaps in Pittsburgh public schools after the pandemic, or we are still in a pandemic, but, <laughs> um, and all the while I've been sort of digging into, uh, the congest conditions of the Allegheny County Jail. Um, and yeah, that's what we're doing right now. And, and but before we get into, uh, the topic that you just mentioned, you know, uh, criminal justice and the important work that you've been doing, um, you know, you said something that really struck a chord. You said that, you know, um, one of uh, the, the goals of the work that you're doing and the and the entities that are funding, you know, your work are, you know, are to save, you know, journalism. You know, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the impacts of the changing landscape, you know, in journalism over the last generation and why it necessitates um, you know, uh, very hard hitting, independently funded, um, you know, independent journalism, like, like the work that you're doing, you know, what kind of situation has created that? And why is it so important to have that the kind of journalism that you do in the current media landscape? Yeah, um, it's, I, I don't think it's a secret <laughs> that, that we are facing um, just media buyouts, layoffs, um, you know, uh, certain folks buying a newspaper and deciding editorially what's happening, um, feeling beholden to perhaps advertisers or different funders. Um, and the pandemic really, really hit, you know, the journalism institution. Um, 
a lot of us didn't survive. And this, this seems to be the way to sort of get that, <laughs> to keep doing it and, and keep um, shining a light into opaque systems. I mean, we, we are the other arm of government and we want to keep being a watchdog and, you know, these foundations and these funders and these donors that, that uh, are supporting us, you know, are signing up for that and knowing that when they come to us, that we are going to be independent, that we are going to dig into the thing. Um, and they're supportive of that work. And it's been really encouraging, actually. You know, it was really scary to take this risk and do this. And we've actually been really encouraged. And people really want good news. You know, um, the flyby headline sometimes doesn't get the story right. Um, and in the case of Todd Robinson, I know we're going to talk about that. But when you report out of the police report, you don't get the full story often. Um, and centering the incarcerated person, you you find out more. Um, and that's kind of been our mission in, in every facet, whether it's education or arts or mental health or disability, is going and finding that community member and asking them, what do they think about the system? And it turns out that they have a lot to say and they actually have a lot of insight. Um, so I know that was kind of tangential, but. Yeah, that, a lot of, that's a, a, a lot of great insight. One of the, the things that I've seen over the past uh, couple of years, and, and I'll pass it over to my colleague Miracle, is, you know, in the in even in the wake of you know daily newspapers becoming you know less than daily, for for lack of a, of of a better term, and and what you talked about media conglomeration, I, I do feel as though the, the the nonprofit independent journalism you know has in some ways you know led to a more informed citizenry than we even had before when we had you know, less media uh, conglomerations and, and, and daily newspapers, because, you know, I, you know, over the years, I've followed a lot of the research that's come out of the Lear Center at, at USC, and they always talk about, you know, how little civic information is shared, um, you know, on local news broadcasts, and that's not a knocking on, you know, our broadcast right. outlets, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all over the country where it's very, very little of a 30-minute local newscast is spent. On, on civic information, I feel as though as things have, um, you know, gotten to where they've gotten to that creates this crisis in the midst of that crisis, I do feel over the last several years, having the work that you're doing in other uh, of your, of your counterparts has created a situation where I think in, in some ways at certain micro levels, we do may have, a more informed citizenry than we had. I think people know a lot more about the criminal justice system locally now than they did five years ago when we had a daily newspaper about what's going on in the jail and the work that, you know, not only you were doing, you know, at Public Source, at The Current, at some of the other, at, at the City Paper and some of the other outlets that have really put a microscope on, on some of these issues that you can't really cover, you know, in a 30 minute, you know, 10 o'clock news broadcast or 11 o'clock news broadcast. But um, but, but again, thank thank you for your work, and I really appreciate your insight. Miracle. Yeah, no, I I I want to first of all, I could never do broadcast news because every time I've gone on, I was sweating and panicked, and I don't know how they do it. Like how quickly they have to remember something and say it like right is incredible, and I don't know how they do that. But I think too, just readership. I mean, people want to read this. We people are interested in our jail they're interested in our police departments they're interested in our public schools and they are hungry for this information and they're so informed now 
um, that there is there is a consumer. I mean, I hate to use it in those terms, but people want and how lucky are we to use it at a local level where it's the most impactful to keep to really dig on in on something like locally and talk to our neighbors about our neighbors and make sure the community is as informed as it can be. It's really exciting. Thank you so much for that miracle. And you've mentioned Todd a couple of times. Can you just talk a little bit about his case and how this story came to be? Because a lot of people are like, wait a minute, I thought jails only house people for like six months to a year. How does someone stay in a local jail for four years? Um, I don't know. I don't actually, I don't know if I can answer why he has been a pretrial detainee for that long. That was something that I, is a big question mark. Um, for me personally, I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but he has been awaiting trial since 2017. Um, when in 2017, he was in Wilkinsburg um, and was going to visit a friend's auto body shop really early in the morning. And he was leaving another friend's house and he didn't want to drive all the way back to where he was going. So he just parked his car in an alleyway and took a nap. And sometime later, um, two Wilkinsburg police officers were ticketing, you know, park, parked cars. Um, and they wrote up a parking ticket for his vehicle. And when they went to put that ticket on the window, they saw Mr. Robinson sleeping. And they woke him up and asked for his ID, and he handed his ID to them. They ran the license, nothing came back, and they let him go. Um, I wanna say before I get into this next part, any previous reporting into Todd's case um, didn't include this parking segment. Everything that was reported, if you had Googled Todd Robinson before we wrote the story, it would have said X con was running from police in Wilkinsburg and was shot. So I just want to preface that. <laughs> um, the dispatch came back and said that Mr. Robinson had violated his parole because he had not returned to a halfway house that he was staying at as a condition of his parole and that his record, he had served 20 years for homicide. With that information, the police made some assumptions about whether he was violent, et cetera, um, and they went on a looking for him for an hour in Wilkinsburg. Meanwhile, Todd went to McDonald's to have breakfast and was in the McDonald's when um, Officer Christopher Duncan and Matthew Morrison secured the perimeter of that parking lot. Um, Todd exited the restaurant and got into his car. Um, there is a lot of conflicting accounts about what happened next. But what we do know is that Morrison and Duncan fired multiple shots into this vehicle and struck um, Mr. Robinson. In that 15 seconds, Mr. Robinson backed up and hit a police car and then fled the parking lot. Um, his position is they were going to kill me and I was fleeing out of fear. The police's position is that he was trying to kill them. Um, he leaves, he's bleeding out. He um, crashes in front of the family dollar in Wilkinsburg, um, collapses into some bushes. He is found um, and arrested. They, he is critically injured and taken to UPMC Mercy, 
Um, and after that, I want to, I have to, I wrote down his list of charges and I wanted to make sure that I had them right. Um, hold on one second. I'm sorry. He has been charged with, um, 10 criminal charges, two counts of aggravated assault, possession of a firearm, criminal mischief, carrying a firearm without a license, fleeing or attempted elude of the police, reckless endangerment, vehicle or property damage and reckless driving. Um, for those two counts of aggravated assault alone are a minimum of 10 years each. Um, after this shooting, and he's been sitting in the jail since then. Um, after this shooting, the officer who shot him was named officer of the year um, by the Teamsters local union. Um, and he also shot another man eight months later after he had shot Mr. Robinson. Um, and that is the nutshell of the case. Sorry, I... <laughs> but I wanted to get all that in. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for that miracle. Yeah. And so I know he has a hearing tomorrow. Can you just talk a little bit what the status of that is? Yes. So his lawyer has filed what's called a 600 motion. Um, it basically is saying that he, um, had a right to a speedy trial within 180 days, and it's been four years. Um, and his lawyer is arguing that uh, Mr. Robinson should be released because of that. Um, the other motion that is also being discussed tomorrow is that uh, Mr. Robinson is filing a discovery motion for the footage of the, McDon the McDonald's footage of the shooting. He says that the prosecution has this camera, I mean, this tape, um, he's never seen it. They've never given it to him. Um, I'm not sure if what the prosecution, if they think it exists, that's unclear to me. Um, but I do know that they are going to ask for that tape and bring that tape up tomorrow as well. Thank, thank you for that. Um, and is there you know, any, anything else, you know, particularly uh, about this case that the, the public should know about, you know, that may, may have not, you know, been covered, you know, in, in the current story that we, that we, uh, have shared in our comment section that was covered in the Capitol Star? Um, I, the only, you know, those two big points were that this started with a parking violation. You know, um, uh, Robinson's defense argued that he didn't have to give his license over from the beginning. Um, and they've also argued that the warrant that was obtained by police after the fact that discovered this gun that he says is not his also shouldn't be allowed to be in this case. Um, and the other, you know, the major point I think for him is that he is, has not taken a plea deal and he will not because he is very determined to prove his innocence. Um, something that Robinson has said to me over and over and over again is that I'm patient. And that's part, partially why I, there's a lot of factors as to why he's been um, awaiting trial this long, but I think it's that he, he will not budge again, he will not take a plea. Yeah. And I think it's also, he's not from Wilkinsburg, correct? He's no ma'am. I'm not sure exactly where he's from though. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I think it's also, um, talking about someone from outside being at it, but being at a jail for four years, but has no, direct community family members or relatives. So it really has been relying on other people 
to amplify his story, to support him, uh, to engage in, in kind of advocacy campaigns on his behalf. And right before, you know, we let you go, we've done a lot of work about what's going on in the jail. Um, but I know it's not going to be enough uh, for this next like couple of moments. But can you just talk about some of the stories that you've been hearing and some of the common themes that you see when it comes to the local jail? Um, uh, I, yeah, so I've been reporting pretty um, consistently on the conditions of confinement at the jail since um, Thanksgiving of last year. The first story that I started to, I, I reported on the jail in 2018 many years ago, but since the pandemic. Um, and uh, it started with uh, the deaths of men in custody. Um, and from there, I've reported on the jail's uh, COVID-19 mitigation efforts or lack thereof, um, their lack of testing. I've also reported on the food conditions in the kitchen in the jail, um, which became this huge story that I did not expect, just reporting, just finding one thing like a kitchen and, you know, evolving out from there. Um, I've also reported on the fact that the jail has kept incarcerated persons in their cells for 23 hours a day since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Allegheny County passed a referendum, as I'm sure you know, that banned solitary confinement. Um, it's unclear how the jail is complying with that right now. Um, but all of those stories sort of coincide with a lack of staffing at the jail. Every story that I've covered in the past year has something to do with either low medical staffing, corrections officers, you know, not being able to work the whole pod or lack of mental health care at the jail. Um, and that sort of issue is borne out into these different subjects. Um, the other pattern that I encounter all the time is lack of transparency. I um, recently did not win a court case against the county for the autopsy of an incarcerated person. Um, the Office of Open Records granted me that autopsy and the county took me to common police court. Um, it was determined that because I'm not a lawyer, I cannot um, determine liability of our county. Um, so we are gonna appeal that. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I've been denied records of releases. I've been denied policy records um, and the county has not responded to my request for comment in almost a year. Um, I email and email and call and they do not respond. So there's this, um, it's sort of chipping away at the wall all the time and hoping to break into that opaque system. And often, again, centering the testimony of those incarcerated who are the experts actually of the system is how I'm able to do that. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for your efforts. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you've done so much to shine a light, you know, on some issues that, often are invisible, uh, you know, with, you know, folks living their everyday life. So I think you've played a significant role in, in, in making um, our citizenry, you know, even much, even more and more informed uh, than they've been. And like you said, you know, they, they, they refer to, um, you know, your, your area as, as the fourth estate. So, um, you know, that, that you really can't have a functioning democracy without an independent, you know, um, media independent press so thank you so much Brittany Hale Haler from the Pittsburgh Center of Nonprofit uh was it the, the nonprofit center the Pittsburgh Institute of Nonprofit Journalism which is super long so you just say right. pitch if it's easier but right. I want to thank you guys for always promoting our work and being 
champions of local journalism. One Hood Power is amazing. And you guys really do help us with our bullhorn and all of us who work in local journalism. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you soon. Happy holidays. We do. Thank you. Absolutely. And that was Brittany Haler from the Pittsburgh Institute of Nonprofit Journalism. I thank you so much uh, for uh, that enlightenment and, you know, that very, very important coverage of uh, a very, very, very troubling story. A miracle. Um, tell us who is going to join us for our third segment uh, of the show. I think we've had a very, very excellent show. Um, you know, thank you so much, Billy Reeves. Thank you so much, Brittany Haler, for joining us. And now, Miracle, for our final act of the final Live One Hood Power Hour of the year of 2021. Who do we have and what will we be talking about? Yes. So, again, this is going to be a very uh, difficult conversation. Uh, last year, in June 2nd, uh, Sean Monterosa was shot by uh, police. It was revealed that he was on his knees with his hands up uh, and was still um, a, a shot. And just this week, we have learned that the officer who uh, committed the act of violence was recommended to be uh, terminated, still hasn't been um, gone through all of the uh, prosecutions and arrests and things. And so to talk about their fight for justice, to talk about everything they have done to make sure that they are able to get justice for Sean, Please welcome Sean's sisters, Ashley um, and Michelle, to the program. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Miracle? Yeah. And so, like I said, you know, the news came this week that the officer who shot your brother is going to be terminated. Can you just talk about how your family is, is dealing with everything right now and um, after over a year of fighting to just to get some answers, what this decision means to you all. Well, first and foremost, just want to say thank you for giving us op another opportunity to share our story. Um, last week, we got the news uh, from this group, um, the OIR group here in California, who is um, invited by the police department to conduct a thorough investigation. And in their findings, they found everything we've been saying for the past 18 months um, on how Officer Jared Tom, what he did to my brother, was it no, he had no reason to shoot and murder my brother, but specifically shooting him from the backseat of an unmarked pickup truck, um, not even stopped. Um, and when we first got the news, it was almost like, wow, thank you guys for doing this investigation. But at the end of the day, we're happy to know that they got it right this time. A lot of times you hear these third-party investigations always justify um, when an officer murders an unarmed civilian or even um, anybody. So it was just a lot for our family. It was a, an emotional day, um, but it's been an emotional past two weeks, to be honest. Um, once the OIR group uh, report came out, the next day we saw the termination letter that Jared Tom was served by Chief Shawnee Williams of the Vallejo Police Department here in California. Um, so things have been moving in our favor and, you know, we wouldn't be able to do any of this work without the community support. Um, my, our mom's prayers, you know, we, we're really a praying family and just, you know, that's what grounds us day to day. And, you know, it hasn't been easy. 
and I'll let Ashley share Aside a little bit. Aside from the OIR um, report findings and the termination letter being served to Jarrett Todd, we also um, have the blessing of getting Atten- Attorney General Rob Bonta here in California to take on our brother's case for um, criminal charges. And hopefully he concludes his findings and his own personal investigation with his office. Hopefully b- before the, the two-year anniversary, maybe even sooner. But um, we know that if the OIR group is getting this right, um, we know that Attorney General Rob Bonta has to get it right as well. Uh, th- thank you for that. And will there be any uh, pursuit of any, any in, in civil proceedings? And I understand, um, you know, how the legal system works. All criminal proceedings must be, you know, resolved before any civil case, but is that also something that your family is looking into? So our family is being represented by Lee Merritt um, in the civil case right now. So that's still, um, I think, in 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 works. Um, we don't, me and Ashley don't really know what's going on on that as it's a conversation with our parents and our attorneys. But you know, we are pursuing everything we can, and um, for our family, what it truly means to bring justice is, you know. Us being the last family affected by the Vallejo Police Department, it's since 2012, there's been 18 unarmed men who've been murdered um, by all of these officers. They're coined the fatal 14. There's 14 police officers in that department who have at least murdered one or two more unarmed civilians. So it's a really small town. We're born and raised in San Francisco, so it's just about 40 minutes out the out, out of San Francisco. So, you know, Media doesn't always pay attention to what happens in the city of Vallejo. So, you know, it, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of spotlight. And, you know, we just hope that we're doing everything in our power to be the last family affected. Thank, thank you so much for for that rundown. You know, some, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big hip hop head and us, you know, at One Hood Power and One Hood Media love hip hop. So, you know, we've been following E-40, you know, for many, many years. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? He put the city on the map. So, you know, shouts yeah. out. You know, to, to to E40, you know, and, yeah. and the whole crew, you know, uh, you know, much love. And again, you know, you know, um, thank you, um, you know, for for sharing your story um, and, and giving us some background, you know, on on the city that that you're from and and joining us from so far far away. And so, talking a little bit, you know, about you know your city, what do you think it was, um, you know, in in, in your brother's tragic case? Um, and then I thank you just so much for you for your courage and everything. That you're doing it in wake of, of a such tragic event but but clearly there was a trend you know in your city what do you think it was about your brother's case that maybe it becomes the one that really brought the change that that has been needed for years but you know what was it about you know that incident or maybe the activism that you did in the organizing you did but made it something that that got bigger than the borders of your city and something that not only in California we're looking at, but here even in Pittsburgh and around the world. Right. I think, you know, it was in the midst of the George Floyd uprisings and people, you know, standing up in solidarity with George Floyd, following Breonna Taylor as well. Um, I think it was the timing and us being from San Francisco, a much bigger city that's well-resourced and we are well-connected with folks in our community that when our brother did pass away, we went boots to the ground in Vallejo. We, we caravaned. We marched down Vallejo. We did so much that I feel like we were able to have that big of an impact because of our community and because of social media. Social media was was super helpful, especially around that time where you just, that, that whole summer, and unfortunately now it, it was kind of like a trend back then, whereas now the numbers aren't really on the street like they used to be. 
but when you would just put an ask out onto social media, people would would pull up and people would pull up in numbers. So I think because of we had that pressure from the jump, we were able to be consistent um, with the continuous support of like the Gathering for Justice and and all these other organizations that have been supporting us since day one. And another thing we want to recognize is that one of the things that our mentor has taught us, Carmen Perez, is one of the uh, principles of king and nonviolence is suffering. And sometimes we have to suffer a little bit for a bigger cause. And on Sean's form at the anniversary, we got arrested at Governor Gavin Newsom's home, just demanding for something to happen. Um, the DA, local DA recused herself. Nancy Pelosi called out the FBI of Sacramento to investigate Sean's case. No one the, wanted to take on the, the case. The Board of Supervisors of San Francisco sent a letter um, to the city of Vallejo to release the name of all the officers involved. So um, we said, you know what, let's just take it to the streets and let's get arrested and do some civil disobedience. You know, sometimes we've got to suffer a little bit for a bigger cause um, to achieve a greater goal. And we were held in uh, county jail in Sacramento for about 23 hours. But eventually we did get a statement from Gavin Newsom. Eventually, with pressure, um, Attorney General Javier Becerra stepped down and then we got uh, Attorney General Rob Bonta, who did take on the case finally. And so that's where we are now. But it's been a long journey of nonstop work. And we're just now barely starting to stop and heal and, and do some internal heart work and healing work because it's exhausting. And we know that we can't get burnt out uh, because we do have a long journey ahead of us. Before we uh, go to you, Miracle, I just want to say quick shouts out um, to Carmen Perez and the gathering, Mr. Belafonte. You know, I was at the first gathering back in 2005 um, in Epps, Alabama, was at the one in Santa Cruz, um, you know, with the whole crew on Santa Cruz as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, not much, much love to the gathering, but um, Miracle to you, I just want to give a quick shout out. <laughs> she brought up some of, some of the good folks that we need to lift up, you know, as much as possible. Yes. And you've been out here, like you said, going boots to the ground, getting people to um, organize and, and, and support your family. A couple of questions. What does justice look like for you? I know you said that you don't want other families to experience what you're going through, but for your family, and I know everyone has like different interpretations and parents and siblings, um, but what does justice look like for you? And is there anything you feel comfortable in sharing about your brother that you would like people to know? Because again, like you said, sometimes the media is not always on your side and what they report is not always the best picture. So what is something that you would like people to take away knowing about your brother? Aside from what we've mentioned about what justice looks like to us, justice also looks like healing. You know, a lot of the times you see impacted families, people like us just coming from a place of pain. But we have to learn how to come from a place of healing and love. And with coming a place with healing and love, we have to take that time to maybe set up um, reach retreat centers and where families and folks can heal and and you know do that internal healing work to then bounce back and and continue working for their cause. But aside from that, um, what we've done is bring into action not only on the on the streets. We're on legislation on the back end, you know, California was, was one of four states who didn't have a process to decertify police officers um, last this year. <laughs> SB2 police certification in California was passed and was signed into law September by Governor Gavin Newsom. So, you know, we've seen milestones. We're seeing the policy, the back end stuff um, working in our favor. And, you know, there's another bill we're supporting, SB299, which will provide victims compensation to all families affected by police violence. So we can start breaking those barriers that are set up against us. So that's kind of like what justice looks like, you know, just creating more 
laws and policy, you know, departmental changes that can actually change what's happening. You know, I feel like a lot of times if we don't try to work, you know, on the on the laws and policy ends, you know, we don't always see things be effective. So, you know, sometimes you got to play the inside outside game like Carmen taught us. Um, but for our brother, I was a baby sister. Michelle's the oldest and Sean was the middle sibling. So for me, he was my second dad. Whenever my dad was, you know, immigrant families, your parents are are working two to three jobs, you know, just to make a way. And my brother really was like my second dad trying to raise me, taught me what I know. Like I am who I am because of my brother. He just laced me with like hella game. <laughs> um, and so but that was me. But he was he, he was my protector and all that. But I'll pass it on to Michelle. But overall, he was just wanted to provide so much for the family. You know, he was. He might have looked hard on the outside, but was super sweet on the inside. And, you know, he one thing he told me and Ashley always was, you know, take advantage of every resource that's given to you because you never know. You never know who you're going to be. You never know something, you know. So he really fulfilled his dreams. He always wanted to be a carpenter. He wanted to buy my parents a rundown home and fix it the way they wanted it, you know. But he was able to, you know, at least be able to be a carpenter, you know. So, you know, me and Ashley are doing everything we can. And, he, his legacy and his memory leave, lives through us. You know, sometimes it's hard. We don't have to wear our, our our scars on our chest all the time. But, you know, we're just learning to, you know, create an, a, a happy life for ourselves, too. You know, and hopefully, you know, we can see a lot of change. But, you know, we have to also heal heal ourselves for the for the marathon to, that continues. Yeah. One quick question I had before uh, we go back to Miracle, um, were you involved um, in any form of activism, um, you know, before this this tragedy? Um, and go ahead. I was going to say, so being born and raised in the Bay Area and San Francisco specifically, it's already kind of taught in us in our academia. So uh, from a young age, we already teachers started teaching us how to do walkouts, you know. But um, I don't think for us personally, we weren't thinking. You know, we were we were activists in our own ways, but we weren't like along the way we are you know prior to my brother's death i was a youth ambassador and doing community-based work in uruguay and south america for a summer um then i went to the uh, protest against the school of the americas down in nogales arizona nogales mexico um and to like shut down ice uh detention centers in eloy in arizona so we've been doing a bunch of stuff but this time it became personal on june 2nd so since then we've been running with this baton you know our last our brother's last text message to us was to sign a petition to get George Floyd justice. And then 40 minutes after he was gunned down. So it was like that, you know, figuratively speaking, he passes a baton and he were, we're trying to get justice for him. Wow, it's powerful. A miracle? I know you talk a lot about like healing and support for families, but families who are going through what you're going through, do you have any words of advice? I know you said you're um, coming up on, on two years, you know, next year. And so you're still freshly going through it and you're really in it. But do you have any like words of advice or wisdom for families who are um, recently going through what you're going through? I think most importantly, just take time with yourself. You know, um, these rush of emotions come at any time. Um, you know, really try and have community there for you. Because the worst thing is, you know, when you're affected by by this violence, you know, and you don't feel like you have anyone behind you, even sometimes your own family. So, you know, just really sitting with your emotions and being present, you know. But one thing we do want to eventually create, you know, is a law, like we said in California, victims' compensation for families affected by police violence. And I hope that it's a law that can also be implemented in every other state, you know, not just in California, but 
for families affected by police violence to seen, be seen as survivors and, you know, not be treated the way that we are. And for me, I would say you're not alone. Um, definitely take time to heal because I wish I took the advice of people telling us to rest before we get burnt out way sooner. Um, here we are a year and a half later, barely trying to take time for ourselves. So, you know, taking time for yourself is very important to continue on this journey. Thank, thank you so much. I, I just have one, uh, one, one quick final question uh, on my end. Like, like I mentioned, you know, I was, uh, you know, had uh, the privilege to be invited you know, to the initial, you know, gathering. Can you talk about how were you connected with Carmen Perez, you know, in the gathering? Can you talk a little bit, you know, about who Carmen Perez is and, and, and the gathering and, and then were you already connected, you know, with that work prior, uh, you know, to the tragedy or, or was that a connection that was made um, in, in, in the wake of all the challenges you and your family are facing? That was a connection made by, by God, the universe. Um, two weeks after our brother passed, she DM'd the Justice for Sean Instagram page that we have. Um, and we exchanged numbers. She said she wanted to support us um, and figure out how she can help us out um, and help amplify Sean's story. We exchanged, Michelle exchanged phone numbers with her. She had the wrong number for like a whole month and then DM'd back. And then we finally gave the right number and we were finally able to tap in with each other. And since then, it's been a blessing um, to have a mentor during, during this whole journey because there's a lot of mistakes someone can make, especially I don't think we would have gotten this far in our case had it not been for the gathering in Carmen supporting us from day one, literally, um, and other organizations as well. But the gathering uh, was founded in, by the legendary uh, singer-songwriter, Mr. Harry Belafonte, and now the president CEO is uh, Carmen Perez, Miss Lady Justice One on Instagram. And yeah, um, they work to uh, close youth prisons, uh, support uh, families affected by police uh, police brutality like us and also she was one of the co-founders of the women's march you know so we're you know we're little sponges in this in this space you know we're learning by so many greats you know as she tells us you know miss we're an extension of her and mr d so you know we we hope to honor everything we've, we've learned through them but you know to provide real support for 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 folks as well yeah, thank you so much. And um, as we wrap, is there any, we put the, you know, the gatherings link, the Stand with Sean uh, website in the comments. Is there anything that you need from the community to support, to help you uh, keep getting these results for your family and for others? I would just say continue to show up on Justice for Sean for Instagram, repost, like, comment, um, continue amplifying Sean's story. Um, and then also support the gatherings work on Instagram, gather number four justice. And uh, you can also follow NYC Justice League, um, where we also are members of into other grassroots work in uh, other states and wherever the movement goes. Um, we also do that. So you can also support those pages as well. But whenever we put a call out on the Justice for Sean, just make sure, you know, to tweet, email, call whoever we need show up. to show up. And, you know, I think collectively as a community, we've seen the fruit of all of our labor in my brother's case specifically you know we wouldn't have been able to get any of these wins without the support of everyone and everyone has the Carmen always says everyone has a lane you know and everyone's playing their lane playing a role in their lane so you know it's been a collective win all right well Ashley and Michelle we do thank you so much for joining you know us this evening obviously we wish it was under you know other circumstances but thank you so much and we you know send love and prayers to you and your family um, and we do hope that the investigation, that the attorney general comes and rules in your favor as well. Thank you Thank so much you. for having us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Thank you so much. And that's Ashley and Michelle Monterosa from Vallejo, California. I'm sharing a powerful, powerful story. We uh, thank them so much uh, for their courage and, and standing up um, for the legacy of, of their brother and uh, and, and taking, and, you know, not only, you know, seeking justice for themselves, but, you know, really transforming the landscape, you know, of the city they live in and affecting change in the entire state of California. Um, very, very, very powerful, powerful story. So we definitely thank them for joining us tonight. Uh, yes. And again, this conversation, I hope everyone saw a theme through the, you know, through all of our guests and talking about the way that, you know, it takes community, it takes action, it takes all of us coming together and showing up and supporting each other to make change and to fight for justice. Um, and even just to expose the truth and figure out what's really, really going on, whether it is writing, you know, a, a paper and an article, whether it's doing advocacy work or even getting arrested on the governor's lawn, it takes a lot of support and strength for community members to really fight for each other and to, affect change and create policy legislation and force people to, you know, um, approve it and vote for it. And so I hope people walk away uh, or tune off uh, tonight's broadcast with feeling inspired to go out and continue the fight uh, for justice in various cases. And we know a lot's going on, but remind people tomorrow at 9 a.m., if you are in the Pittsburgh area, please go down uh, to the courthouse at 9 a.m. To, to observe. Todd's case, you can reach out to ALC Court Watch. That is ALC Court Watch, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for information about where to go, um, what to bring, you know, so that you are able to get into the court's room, know the policies and procedures. Um, in addition, this Wednesday, um, Wednesday at 1 p.m., I know we have a graphic coming up, but there is going to be a protest uh, for people to come out and show support um, uh, for Shantae and some other women of trans experience here in Pittsburgh as they're fighting to uh, make uh, their legal name their their names their legal names because here in Pennsylvania there are laws on the books that prevent people from trans experience from changing their legal names if they have certain criminal convictions. Um, as a reminder, changing your name does not erase your conviction, does not erase your past criminal history, but it does expose you to discrimination and transphobia and homophobia and bigotry, and it prevents uh, people of trans experience from living their full authentic selves. And so we're rallying for people to come down Wednesday at 1 p.m. and show support and, and solidarity for these local women who are trying to affect change uh, here in Pennsylvania. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kahari, who's going to talk about uh, our holiday break. Yes, yeah, so uh, this will be our, our last show until Monday, um, January 3rd. Uh, we will be taking uh, a short hiatus um, to uh, enjoy uh, the year-end holiday season. However, you know, you, um, you know, celebrate this time or observe this time, you know, um, you know, uh, rest is resistance. So, you know, we'll be taking a break. But before we do that, there is a couple um, policy things I, I did. I did want to mention uh, um, in, in, in Harrisburg this week, um, there's a focus on House Bill uh, 1800. Um, that is a, a election reform bill. Um, it would move 
um, the deadline to register to vote back 30 days as opposed to the third, the certain, uh, the current rather 15 day um, deadline. Um, it would eliminate um, all in person early voting until 2025. Uh, you know, it would also uh, enact new restrictive in person voter ID provisions. And it would uh, also uh, limit options for returning absentee and mail-in ballots, as well as other uh, obstacles uh, to, to voting. We'll drop some um, information about it in the, in the comment section uh, before uh, we adjourn for the evening. And then also I did want to mention uh, Senate Bill 913 around um, probation. Um, it would, um, the Senate Bill 913 would create a new form of probation called administrative probation for people who have failed to pay the restitution. People who fall in this category could be on probation indefinitely with no consideration for their financial circumstances. This could be another form of punishment uh, for those who live in poverty. Um, so we'll also have information about that. Um, so two bad pieces of legislation, um, House Bill 1800, uh, that would create some barriers to voting, as well as Senate Bill uh, 913 that would create um, some barriers for those on probation to get off probation um, solely around uh, financial uh, reasons. So um, two things that definitely be on your radar. And as we go into 2022, we will be spending more time in, in, in our shows to talk about, you know, specific pieces of, of, of legislation, where, whether good or bad, that really need to be on your radar. And uh, House Bill 1800 and Senate Bill 913 are two of those types of legislations that should be on your radar. Exactly. And again, um, as community in action was the theme for this evening, we hope you pay attention to what's going on with these bills, calling elected officials, tell them to vote no, because of the collateral consequences it causes for uh, families. And as we saw just earlier, what can happen with these random tickets and, and these enforcements and how it entraps people and cycles of state violence and poverty. So again, it's just like very important that you stay again in tuned with your civic engagement. And even if you're not registered to vote, you can always talk to your elected officials, even if you're like just a resident or, or someone who's just very passionate about issues, you're always welcome to reach out to elected officials, have meetings with them, write them letters, talk to them on social media, um, and explain why this legislation is bad, regardless of political affiliation and background. So it's very important that all elected officials know what's going on and know how this impacts community and how communities do not want uh, these bills to be passed. And with that, to take us out, I'll pass it over to Kahari. Thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you, everyone, um, you know, for watching uh, for another year uh, of the One Hood Power Hour. Uh, when we get up into the spring of 2022, we will be officially um, at two years. Definitely want to thank producer John. Um, thank you so much. Also, Gary, uh, who always is on the help out as well. Um, but definitely producer John, who's with us every Monday, um, you know, helping provide us a platform to reach out to folks. So um, just really excited. Uh, you know, next year is going to be a lot going on. So definitely get used to us. Um, we're going to start off the year with uh, some, you know, some previews from the local level to the state level, as well as, well as looking at redistricting. Um, where we, we've seen some some uh, initial uh, maps that have come out 
Um, now nothing has been um, set in stone yet, but over the next month, the next few weeks, we will be paying close attention uh, to the legislative maps because it will have a, a great bearing, um, not only here in Western PA, but around the state. Um, and, and it could be a situation where it falls into the hands of the state Supreme Court, um, which could impact the timing of, of when the maps come out and what districts folks will have to run in. So stay tuned. There'll be a lot going on, but in the meantime, enjoy uh, the holiday season, enjoy uh, the end of the year and get ready for another um, intense year of, 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 of political goings on um, at the campaign, as well as the issue and policy levels. So uh, on behalf of my colleague, uh, Miracle Jones and the whole a one hood power team producer john we want to thank everyone for watching us for another year and look forward to seeing you in 2022 uh bright eyed and bushy tailed and, re and ready to go